welcome to Check, Please. I'm going to try to introduce us for the first time. Let's see how this goes. Well, it's said, already gone bad, Tomato. Our podcast is called Check, Displeased. Yes, yeah, I told you. I told you it was going to be a disaster. I don't think we can trust me with this sacred duty. Uh, welcome to Check, Displeased, the podcast that I forgot the name of five seconds ago, in which Secret OMG and I go through Check, Please, the webcomic, strip by strip, examining its very important relationship relationships and brightly colored sneakers. What are we reading today? 1.10 Samuel versus Gale Roman numeral 1, which originally premiered November 30th, 2013. There's an associated blog post, we'll link to it, and as Tomato implied, I'm Secret OMG. All right. I really feel like you did half the heavy lifting there, but I think I'm getting a, you know, I've done some of the work at last. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, that concludes the episode. Talk to you next time when we talk about Samuel versus Yale, Roman numeral two. I guess we have to set the context before we get to Roman numeral two. So let's like reel it back for a hot second here. In this strip, Biddy has an emotion and so does Jack. But we start with Biddy coming down the hallway, talking to himself about how Ransom and Holster asked him to go get six jock straps from the old creepy storage room on the other side of Faber. Anyway, as he walks down the sort of back Faber hall, he hears French coming from an exit door, which is propped open, and he hears Jack speaking in French, saying uh, emotional things that he doesn't understand and that are written in French in the actual comic. He sees Jack hunched over by this loading dock in the arena, clutching his hands to his face. He then asks, are you okay? And Jack sort of like wolf eyes his way up. Biddy then comes and says, well, sorry, I just overheard you. You seem kind of stressed. I just wanted to check. And then he comes down the steps and goes over to sit by Jack on the loading dock. Jack immediately asks Ransom and Holster trick you into going on a jockey run again. And Biddy says, what? No, uh, I need all these things. Then Biddy tries to reassure Jack. Pre-game jitters. Well, I always got worked up before competitions. Blah, blah, blah. I can only imagine how it must be for you. Uh, but it happens to everyone. To which Jack says, thanks, Biddle. Biddy responds by saying, you kidding? I should be thanking you for the check-in clinics. Then Jack gives Biddy a fist bump, saying, you gotta work for them. Uh, and then they head back inside as Biddy sort of chatters. So Ngozi provides a translation in her blog. The first little um, bit that Biddy overhears is ça va, ouais, ça va un peu, non, 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 which is translated as, as I'm fine. Yeah, I'm fine. I mean, a little, no, no, no. And then on the next panel, Jack says, non, je veux que tu viennes, papa, je te jure. Tu sais que mon anxiété va être un problème, peu importe. C'est pas toi, papa, désolé. Ouais, désolé. D'accord, je dois rentrer. Bye, merci. Which means, no, I want you to come, dad, I swear. You know, my anxiety is going to be a problem either way, so it doesn't matter. It's not you, dad. Okay, fine. I should get back inside anyway. Bye. Thanks. Which is basically, I mean, that translation is provided. My assumption is that Ngozi wrote it in English and then like outsourced it to the three people she mentions. The translation's like more or less right. There's a couple things that I might, you know, do differently translating it back into English from French, but I also don't speak Quebec French properly. Like I don't, I don't speak 
Canadian French. So um, what I will say is that there are several spelling errors. Obviously, languages are really, really complicated. I'll just point out that French is a colonial language. That's why it exists in so many parts of the world. So it's got a really, really complicated legacy. It's hard to talk about French as, a, as one language rather than as a language made up of many global particularities. And the history of French-Canadian is like not without its oppression. It's complicated. Jack certainly doesn't seem to deal with that, though, or anything political in any capacity. So that's great for him. So there's a tweet from the era when Biddy's Twitter was locked. Biddy records Jack texting the, the group to ask if anybody else watched the State of the Union in 2016. And everybody just says no, except for Ransom, who says, no, I'm Canadian. Jack is political insofar as he either watched the State of the Union in 2016, or at least wanted to know if somebody else had. You know, I think that might be the most explicit engagement with politics of anyone in the series, so I'll take it. Good for him. All I meant is that Jack doesn't particularly have a, like, a strong um, tendency to comment on any political situation, so that's great for him. Um, but he does have feelings, and that's what this comic's about. Biddy stumbles into overhearing Jack saying this shit to his dad, and not only doesn't understand what Jack is saying, but then reiterates to Jack that he doesn't understand what Jack said. Yeah, well, in later strips, we see Jack talking with other French speakers. And in those strips, there are these, like, it's just translated in the script itself. Versus this particular strip in which we hear Jack talking in French, but unless you speak French or unless you check out the blog post, there's not an immediate way of understanding what he's saying, which really just firmly attaches the point of view here to Biddy. As, as you mentioned, but I think in later strips when we get the translation, obviously, even this, although Biddy studies French, I think it's made pretty clear in the comic that he's not very good at French and he's not present for those conversations. I didn't look into this specifically, but off the top of my head, strips in which he talks to somebody in French and it's translated include at his graduation, 217, when he's talking to his dad at graduation, you know, his dad is saying, like, what's up? And Jack is saying, like, oh, I just feel like I something, something. That is in translation. Uh, you just see it in English. Except I think when Jack starts running away from his dad, he says something like, I'll be back. And that is in French. When he talks to Marty in the um, equipment room at the Falks Stadium, they exchange a few words in French. And actually, it's essentially Jack coming out to him saying, I have a boyfriend and I want to bring my boyfriend to dinner. That is in translated French. There's a strip at the beginning of year three, however, where it's um, it's 3.7 LVA versus PBD1, where Biddy is making a cassoulet, and Jack says to Biddy something like, making French food doesn't replace studying your flashcards, and it's given in French in the strip. So if we think about that, then at least it seems to be consistent that when 
Jack is speaking to Biddy in French or Biddy overhears Jack speaking in French and the point is that Biddy doesn't understand it's in French and you have to go check it elsewhere. Like how deeply does this need to be analyzed? Well, I don't know. I think it's kind of an interesting thing because the function of these two incidents of Biddy overhearing French and not understanding it are different. In the first one, Jack doesn't know that anybody is hearing him, so he's speaking as he would speak to another native French speaker whose primary method of communication is in French, which is their shared first language, and Biddy just happens to overhear him and barges in. But the second time is Jack making a point about how Biddy doesn't understand the French. So Biddy has this, this way of narrating, which is, to me, as a reader, somewhat unreliable. There's a lot of, like, uh, shaping or curating, I think, that happens when he's telling us something, like, in the vlog, for example, right? And then we see what might have actually happened, and often it's sort of simplifying, or, or, or something's happening there where we understand that, like, his portrayal of events is particular to his viewpoint. It might not be shared by all others. I think that in the fandom... I think most people kind of accept him as a fairly reliable narrator. I'm trying to understand Biddy's relationship to Jack, how Biddy conceives of his relationship to Jack as we go through the comic, and then how the comic's narrative frame understands who's telling the story. We see the French, we know it's attached to Biddy's viewpoint, even though that's third person, as far as Biddy's concerned, like we're still kind of attached to Biddy's perspective. And once the comic starts to shift genres, shift expectations, shift what it's doing, I don't know, there's something about the way the POV shifts also and how that can be represented, for example, when Jack comes up to Marty, which is something that like Biddy doesn't have access to how we can think about how the genre is shifting alongside that. I mean, I'm not sure if within the context that 1.10 Samwell versus Yale number one is being written, there's any foreknowledge of the fact that the point of view is ever going to detach from Biddy at all. Like the idea that Jack would be depicted coming out to a co-worker on an NHL team in a setting that Biddy doesn't even have access to might be extremely distant from whatever plan or whatever rough outline of this story exists when this particular strip is being written. Part of what we're following here and reading through these is tracking how the story is shaped, both on a piece-by-piece basis and over a sort of duration of the telling. And I think we're maybe going to start to notice when the story starts to kind of peel away from the mode it's in here, which is framed entirely around Biddy's experience. That said, is this the first strip in which Biddy is not narrating from the vantage point of his vlog? Is it? Well, besides the besides the ransom and holster strips, I think it might be. I didn't go back and check, but oh, let's go back and check. We can edit all this out. Yeah, I just went back and checked. So the only one that doesn't start with him talking to his vlog are the hockey prints and the ransom and holster strips. How did you check so quickly? I just pressed the back button real fast. 
Well, so the Hockey Prince is interesting because it's not really set in the world of the comic at all. And we don't need to go back and rehash that, except as it relates to this particular installment. It has nothing to do with Biddy, except at the end where he's the little shit who shows up. But it's not about Biddy's point of view or his experience in any way. So, and it's also not narrating real-time events. It's not like a day in the life or an incident in the life of Biddy's freshman year at Samwell on the hockey team. It's pure backstory. So this is kind of the first moment in which we see Biddy doing something and living his life without it being presented through the lens of Biddy vlogging about it. And maybe that's because this is more private. This isn't the kind of thing you might talk about in a vlog. Later, the comic would use the vlog device to retell this story indirectly. So it would start with Biddy saying like, oh boy, I'm so excited because we're getting ready for our first game against Yale. I haven't fainted in a game yet this year, but I'm real nervous because my mom is going to be watching. It's really nerve-wracking when your parents watch you play hockey and then it cuts to Biddy, like stumbling onto Jack or something like that. So that's one strategy that the comic sort of tends to take later on. The other strategy is where Biddy is like very blatantly, indirectly talking about what he's witnessed in a really unspecific way. So saying something like, have you ever noticed somebody who you don't really like is having a hard time and you don't know how to help them? but you don't want to have them suffer and not say anything, and then you cut to this. Or it's woven into showing Biddy's interaction with Jack. That comic I mentioned before, 3.7 LVA versus PBD, is happening underneath Biddy giving vlog narration about communication in a relationship. So 3.15, it's called Dinner at Marty's, question mark, starts with Biddy narrating, well, I find out today if I'm having dinner with my significant other's co-worker. He's trying to set everything up. He's so busy and I'm so busy, but it's not about finding a time. It's about making that commitment. And it starts with a scene of Biddy like digging through his bag in in his stall in the locker room, and then it cuts to Jack having a conversation with Marty. So it is also framed around Biddy sort of talking obliquely about the thing you're about to see him doing. I think this is part of the comic kind of developing its style. It's completely abandoning the framing of Biddy's vlog whatsoever. Like, he's not cutting in here at any point in a little square box saying like, we're at that point in the season when blah, 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 or anything like that. How do you think that the lack of framing through the vlog impacts the way you read this strip? Would it feel less impactful if you had that sort of intrusion? Possibly yes, because I feel like Biddy's narrations by the middle of year three start to get really disruptive and heavy-handed. 
You don't need Biddy's narrative or Biddy's voiceover telling you how to feel about the comic strip because this doesn't seem to be Biddy setting up to the reader through the metatextual lens of his blog how he wants to be perceived. He kind of seems like a little bit stupid here. Yeah, I mean, I I don't think it's just in the last panel, although I do think that that is, um, well, okay, let me back up. First of all, he's agreed to go get six jock straps in what is clearly an incident of like minor hazing. He's saying, hmm, sure, see if I ever bake y'all's favorite cookies again, ransom and holster to himself as he walks back through the hallway, but he like went to go get the jock strap. So either that's like a little dumb or a little unwilling to stand up for himself or or whatever, right? Like there's some way that Biddy portrays himself, especially as we go through the second half of the comic where he is this suave caretaker, everybody likes him, like he's unanimously voted whatever, everyone loves Biddy. In the end, he he kind of stumbles over himself, right? Like he kind of says the wrong thing to Jack. I can only imagine how it must be for you. Jack has this ellipsis. And then Biddy stumbles over himself to say, oh, but it happens to everyone. He starts sort of rambling and Jack says, Biddle, how about you try not to talk until the game start? And then he keeps rambling and then Jack sighs. It's endearing, I guess, and or it's supposed to be endearing, but it's also not the same Biddy knows how to navigate every social situation that we get later. Knowing Ransom and Holster, like even up to this point in the comic, I don't think they're the kind of guys who, if they said, hey, Biddle, why don't you go and get six job straps? If Biddy said no, I don't think they would be like, well, fuck you. And then they like beat him up or something. I think if Biddy was just like, I'm not getting y'all jock straps, they would just be like, LOL, our little frog is growing a spine, and then they would move on to like the next 18 dumb things. I feel it's almost like Biddy wants to be hazed, or he wants to go through this, or he is enjoying like participating in this dumb ritual. I think it's unclear if Biddy knows all of the context that we now have about Jack. So he overhears Jack having this conversation. He's being nice to Jack, not because he understands what Jack is saying. Jack, who up until this point has consistently been an asshole to him, as we've seen, but he just hears that Jack is upset. And I think there's a couple ways to read this. And they do sort of depend on, like, what we think Biddy knows about Jack, like, up to here. Like, if we're accepting that Jack has, like, a diagnosable mental illness that causes him to experience anxiety, his use of the phrase anxiety in his narration to his dad kind of emphasizes that, yes, that's supposed to be the case. We now know that, but does Biddy know that? And then when he makes this comment, I can only imagine how it must be for you. And then Jack sort of makes ellipses in his speech bubble. It's interesting to imagine what's going through Jack's mind. Is he thinking, no, I have this like diagnosed mental illness like you don't understand? Or is he thinking, oh, if this kid can imagine how it must be for me, there must be something identifiable about the way that I'm acting that other people are noticing and that's not good. 
even if Biddy looked up the information in the hockey prints, there's no way that he would have access to the same amount of information that we, the readers, get from the hockey prints because he would have gotten a bunch of like deadspin articles <laughs> or whatever in which there was presumably speculation about why this happened or maybe what happened or maybe even that Jack was in rehab, but not any in- insight into his motivations. But even if Biddy knows the bones of what happened, there's no way he could have access to Jack's kind of interiority you know? And so that also makes me think about Jack's response, like this response, like what does this kid think he knows about me? I also think an interesting reading that I don't believe is intended, but can be kind of projected here is Jack thinking like, oh, this very painfully, obviously gay kid is identifying with me. That's not good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think it's intended either, but I think it's there to be read. Or maybe it's just like a mixed bag of different things. Like Jack is seeing this kid who's a disaster and he's thinking like... oh no, I am supposed to be the upperclassman and the captain of the team and this like junior hockey prodigy. I am supposed to be in the position of authority and power here. And yet this little kid who can't even keep it together to like stay upright on the ice during practice can imagine how it must be for me. That's not good. It makes me feel uncomfortable. I'm not sure why. Ellipses. And then the response where Biddy says, uh, but it happens to everyone. And then there's another ellipsis and uh, Jack says, thanks, Biddle. And then Biddy says, you know, you, you kidding? I should be thanking you for the check-in clinics. Like, I'm really curious about that. So the first clinic that we saw, there was like a weird aggressive situation where like Jack yells at Biddy and Biddy like cowers before him, but also Zimbits, like question mark, question mark, question mark. And I'm curious how that kind of like unfolded in the clinics that we don't have access to. We've, I think even talked about this before. She does this really curious thing where important pieces of characterization happen off screen or out of the comic are referenced in the comic, but we never see them. But I'm curious whether this is like an early iteration of that, where clearly Jack and Biddy's relationship has developed because he says, I should be thanking you for the check-in clinics. And last we heard about the check-in clinics, he was like, Jack Zimmerman sucks. But we don't actually have access to that. But I think it ha- I think like this moment, uh, but it happens to everyone. Thanks, Biddle. I should be thanking you. It's like a really interesting moment because it is not at all in keeping with the previous times we've seen them together. I think this may in fact be the sort of earliest, most identifiable tell-don't-show character development moment in the comic. I do think that it's important to consider the thing that I always want to consider, which is the paratext, all of these extras and hockey ships, and those have been building out characterization and showing that Jack isn't always an asshole, developing the sort of interteam dynamic or the intra-team dynamic. It's possible that the comic is maybe putting more of its weight onto those paratexts and extra materials than maybe like I previously realized when I was first reading through. 
there are places in Check, Please, where not doing the work and just kind of allowing the reader to make assumptions about what it was that happened is smart and an an economical way to effectively put the interpretation on the reader or recognizing that the outcome and showing the process are relatively indistinct in terms of their value. So if you can just show the outcome and the process is implied, that's fine. I also think that because this is so early in the comic and it's not bearing the weight of, say, the Zimbit's relationship yet, the necessity of showing the process is maybe less obvious. Because at this point, it's just like two dudes playing hockey, buying into their relationship dynamic without having seen it develop, at least is easier for me. Whereas if you're going to tell me like, oh, these two characters are soulmates, they're going to get married and they're always going to have like a perfect forever romance. That's like a really hard buy-in. But just like, okay, these, you know, it's October, November, and these guys have been playing hockey together now for like a couple months. And they don't quite rub each other in as wrong a way as they did at the very beginning of the school year. Like, that's a little easier for me to swallow, even without showing it. Because their relationship becomes such a cornerstone of the series to the point where all other plot disappears. Of course, I'm saying that like from the perspective of having read the whole comic you know when I was reading this the first time I was like the short one's in love with the tall one great and then that's really all that I thought about but from the perspective of thinking of this as a whole work because of the way that people talk about it as this like perfect art piece I think that's influencing my frustration here Um, which maybe isn't fair. I certainly know the first time I read this around, it it didn't really bother me. I was like, oh, they're becoming friends. Yay. You know, I, I wasn't like, how come I didn't see their friendship develop? In retrospect, I find it like a really curious decision to not show the beginning of that shift, to go from like, I'm yelling at you to this really vulnerable moment without anything in between is like a kind of curious choice. In terms of them becoming friends, though, Biddy is intruding. Jack is not asking for his presence. The body language is not really connected. Jack's body language is relatively closed off. Biddy's approach is, like, trepidatious. And then his body language is relatively closed off as well. His legs are crossed away from Jack. Jack is not looking at him. It's not unfriendly necessarily. Biddy is basically intruding on this moment and Jack really doesn't want to like share it with him. That's how I feel until the thanks biddle. Like Jack has shown that he has no compunction about freaking out at Biddy for whatever. And he then later says something kind of, he will soon say another sort of cutting thing to Biddy. So I don't think this is like, they're now friends forever. But I find, and then the fist bump, like there's something happening in that moment, which I feel... I don't know, like interested in. I feel like the fist bump doesn't fit in this strip. This strip in the larger narrative is easily paired with the strip at the very end of year two where Samwell 
loses the final four in Jack's final game, and he's sitting in another loading dock, and Biddy seeks him out to basically, like, comfort him. When we get there, I think it would be interesting to read that body language against this body language. And then at the end of year three, there's a strip. Jack's team is once again in the playoffs, and he is feeling anxious about what's going to happen. By that point, Biddy and Jack are in a relationship. Jack goes to Biddy to, like, seek comfort, and it'll be really interesting to read the body language in that strip. This, I think, is part of a a story about Jack and Biddy's relationship that's being told pretty consistently throughout the duration of the comic. So, like, in a sequence where moments like this keep happening in the duration of the life of these two characters, it makes perfect sense. I don't know that this fist bump at the end of this comic, like, makes narrative sense. There is some like verisimilitude here in the way that not everything is like an upward slope or like a consistent development. Sometimes you feel a little closer and then something happens and then you pull away and then you get a little closer. Like, you know how people are. They're weird. It's not all like a through line. Real life is not a constructed narrative. But this is the sort of thing that made me think this was a different kind of comic than the comic we ended up getting. Because these sort of individual smaller narrative arcs convinced me that there was going to be a bit of like human complexity or like complication of life throwing people off of the trajectory that we might expect. But then when you zoom out and you look at the entire thing as a holistic work, the through line is like blatantly obvious and visible. And people point to that and take a lot of satisfaction out of it, but I can't because I'm an edgelord. (laughs) Well, likewise, obviously. I enjoyed this comic. I thought it was cute. The thing that made me feel like I was going insane was the first half of year three. That's when I like completely lost my mind. I also thought it was going to be a different comic. I thought there were different questions being asked than the questions that ended up being asked. And we can talk about it when we get there. But part of it was that people seemed to be imperfect. They seemed to have complicated reactions to each other. And everyone seemed to be trying to do good things but it didn't always work. And I think that we can see that in this strip. I think this is like one of the strong points of the writing in the first two and a half years of the comic. People try to connect and they might succeed and they might fail, or there might be like potential consequences that get avoided, but like the consequences feel real enough that you feel kind of relieved. The fact that Jack has been presented as a person who can react in a volatile manner and then doesn't feels very exciting. That feels very like, oh, this is like these two characters achieving a new kind of intimacy. This asshole is learning not to be so much of an asshole. Hooray. I will say that I think if Jack had been pissy at Biddy here, he wouldn't have been being an asshole. Because Biddy is intruding on him. In like real person ethics, but in fiction. Jack obviously went to a secluded place where he could have this conversation alone. If he wanted comfort, he would have 
sought it out, I'm sure, instead of sitting by himself, like, at the loading dock. I just reread the strip where Biddy goes to sit by him, and Jack immediately changes what he's talking about, and then Biddy brings it back to Jack's emotions. This is Biddy's dynamic with basically everybody he interacts with in the comic. This is a situation where if Jack had been pissy and maybe said something like, just leave me alone... He would have been justified. The fact that Biddy's emotional reassurance is just forced upon a character who needs to grow accepting of this kind of emotional reassurance is very in keeping with what the moral of the comic seems to be. You need to soften yourself to... Biddy's particular brand of camaraderie and stewardship. If you don't and you remain closed off, that is an indicator of like lack of emotional maturity or lack of growth or lack of bravery or something. That's grim. Look at what happens to Jack over the course of the comic. He just becomes this like heart eyes robot who has no spine and no sense of self. This relates to my interest in the attachment of the POV to Biddy. It is very important for me to read the end of the comic as Biddy's telling of what's happening. Because if I read it as an objective view of what's happening, I find it extremely depressing. And if I read it as attached to Biddy's self-narrative, I can get something out of that in terms of Biddy's characterization. I can get something out of that in terms of what he finds important, how he narrativizes his life. Like, that's actually really interesting to me. If I see it as objective, I'm like, not psyched about it. Now that I'm thinking about the attachment of the POV to Biddy and how Biddy thinks it's appropriate to, like, intrude on someone having an upsetting conversation with their dad from a sort of, like... Uh, you know, within the, within the text perspective, we can see this as Biddy not yet having a complete narrative for everything that's happening to him. He, like, it's not fitting into a narrative that he's telling himself about who he is yet. That then becomes more and more evident as he kind of grows into himself and becomes settled in his idea of himself as someone who caretakes and solves problems and um, bakes pie for, you know, sad hockey players. Remember those walls I built? Well, baby... <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't do this seriously. Uh, The lyrics to Halo I looked up while you were talking, and obviously I know them by heart. It's all about, I built up walls, but they're tumbling down. I found a way to let you in. It's like I've been awakened. Every rule I had, you're breaking. I'm never going to shut you out. That is effectively narration for like what is going on in this particular comic strip and what the whole arc of Check, Please in general is effectively about. And it's not just Biddy who does this to people. I think you could apply this across the board about like the closet and about how everything needs to be like open and broken down and no barriers between anybody and anybody else. We're all just people here and we all want to be seen. Also, when you were saying Halo lyrics, I flashed back to 2009 and I remembered what a good year that was for pop music. Very influential in my personal life. I'd neither heard the song Halo nor knew what it was or that it existed until I read Shaq Plays. Are you ready? Here it comes. I bought my first MP3 player in 2016. 
That was the year that my last portable CD player broke. And I was like, I'm about to go on like a long trip overseas. I guess I'd better buy an MP3 player. This was around the time that I was getting into Check Please. So Halo was one of the first songs I put on it. I think it's possible that the other first song I put on it was like The Weeknd. I guess what I'm saying is 2016 was a weird year. It was a weird year. I don't remember if I'd listened to the State of the Union. I think I did. That was a different time, though. Jack's having this conversation with his dad. Bob should not be having this conversation with Jack. He's basically putting a burden of reassurance on Jack or a burden of having to decide whether or not he wants his dad there. Having to have this conversation is probably itself a source of anxiety. Not because he's an asshole, not because he's a death eater, not because he thinks it's sexy and fun to have a heroin addiction, but just because he's like a middle-aged man who doesn't really know what's up and can't really put himself in his son's shoes. He's effectively causing Jack to feel even worse by forcing Jack to basically have this phone call where Jack has to say, no, I want you to come. No, I'm not going to have a problem. I'm going to have a problem no matter what happens, so you might as well come. Of course I want you to be... Like, Bomb should just basically be like... Listen, I'd love to come to your game, but I have to go to a charity golf shootout. I'm so sorry. Bye. Interesting, though, because I think that the desire to support someone and not know how to support them is like a cool thing that gets explored in the first, the early part of the comic, not just for Jack, for like multiple characters. I like that they're having this moment of tension in terms of characterization, in terms of what he should actually do. When we meet him later, he seems like someone who like wants to support his son And also, how do parents support their children? They, like, go to their game. Just to be clear, for, like, you know, the storytelling mechanism of the possible story we would have gotten about how Jack, like, negotiates his own anxiety, it's a good beat to put in. Also, because Bob and Suzanne need to have an interaction where they're both kind of like, oh, yes, our children should fuck, the author's going to want to put it in the comic. But if you're at the point where you're calling somebody and you're saying to them, listen, if I go to your hockey game, is it going to cause you to have a nervous breakdown? Like, just read the room. There is something about the sentence, of course you should come. My anxiety is going to be a problem either way. It's like a pretty, a pretty rough thing to have to say. Like, yes, I'm going to cry no matter what happens. So yeah, might as well be here. It's like a pretty, pretty rough sentiment. I'm so glad he wasn't speaking in English. Can you imagine if he heard, if like Biddy heard him say that in English? My God. I think at this point, Biddy probably doesn't understand that anxiety is like a symptom of a larger mental illness. He probably just thinks it's like that feeling you're thinking when you're watching the oven, waiting for your, the fruit filling of your pie to start bubbling up under the crust. But there's something about the way that Biddy is portrayed that makes me think he like does not understand mental illness. And I don't know why, even though he's having these reactions, which you can argue are part of a mental illness himself or whatever, there's something about the lightheartedness with which the narrative approaches his problems that makes it really hard for me to read them as like intensely disrupting his life. This is one of these things that I think the comic is really spelling out like there's something wrong with Jack where I don't think the comic for whatever reason is really spelling out there's something wrong with Biddy possibly because with Biddy it's always played as like lighthearted and humorous where he's like 
just push me over there. And people are like, you know, oh, it's like one of those fainting goats. It's like being treated always like it's funny or it's a beat or it's lighthearted or it's like goofy comedic antics. Whereas up to this point, Jack's issues are never like made fun of or treated like they're jokes. Um, people love these fucking shoes, dude. People love that Jack has these kind of ugly highlighter yellow running shoes. Something that was interesting to me visually when I was looking at this strip is that they are actually the same color and pattern as the kind of warning markings or the caution markings on the loading dock. I don't know that that's intentional. One thing it's doing, other than the very obvious reading of, oh, it's like there's a caution warning on Jack, is that it's tying Jack into the entry point to the hockey arena, physically relating him to, like, the material of the the ice rink. It also makes Jack stick out in a way that he otherwise wouldn't. He's wearing the same colors as Biddy for the most part. His hair is black. He's wearing black, like, compression shorts. There's nothing, like, visually weird about him, except for that he's wearing these yellow shoes. It is, like, an interesting signifier of his personality, but it's also kind of a metaphor for his character, in that, for the most part, he is, like, broadly conformist, especially in terms of, like, hockey, but also just kind of, in general, he's, like, broadly conformist and doesn't really call attention to himself. But there's this one thing about him that's, like, slightly off. Like, he doesn't quite fit. He can't quite make himself be entirely normal or entirely conform. There's just something about him that's a little weird and a little awkward, and he can't help it. I, too, went wild for the fact that he had these weird shoes and I still feel fond of it. Here's this guy. He represents this world which Biddy is trying to access. But he too, there's something a little different about him. I think that's pretty nice. I don't know why this struck me so intensely and why I feel so compelled to talk about it. But this panel where Biddy's saying okay and Jack is sort of like lifting his head quickly is just incredibly anime to me. I can't tell you exactly why. I think it's some combination of like how big his eyes are, his body language. I think the color palette is part of it, but it just really struck me in a way that Check Please art usually does not as in conversation with a certain kind of visual. I was on my favorite Anon meme the other day. Someone mentioned that Check Please has a lot in common with Boy Love Comics, which I don't have like great experience with. I certainly read my fair share of scanlations on my friend Abby's computer in her basement when I was like 13. There's something about like big dark haired dude loves small blonde dude. Big dark haired dude has a heart of gold hidden inside an iron wall of anger. And blonde dude cracks open iron wall of anger by being like cute and nice. Seems to be this kind of like inaccessible hockey avatar, but then something about him makes him a little bit more accessible, like these funny shoes or his willingness not to yell at Biddy in this moment, the fist bump or whatever. This panel to me is not anime looking. It's just ugly. He doesn't have like spindly limbs. He doesn't have like spindly fingers. He doesn't have like flop sweat coming off of him. She obviously is well-versed in the visual styles of anime and she pulls them out at various points. 
when she has characters' faces lose most of their defining features and she just draws like little colored dots for their eyes and it gets sort of like overly simplified or overly like cheapified. It's very off model. It's not like an angle you usually see Check Please characters at, so that might be it. Jack is basically what you'd call tsundere, and I've never been in an anime or any kind of like what I guess you'd call like an Eastern fandom. It's almost impossible to be in slash fandom, particularly slash fan fiction fandom, as it has evolved from zines through message boards through live journal up to AO3 and Tumblr without having been exposed to and picking up some frame of reference for Shonen Eye, Yaoi, boys love tropes. The beginning of this comic has a lot of the markers of that genre as I understand it. I think as the comic goes on and it starts to pull in real world concerns that don't fit the yaoi paradigm or whatever, things start to get weird and break down. Big sort of like dark haired guy who's kind of an asshole who opens up whose walls crumble down and so on and so forth. Paired with like little kind of like light haired guy. How much of this characterization is happening in the comic and how much of it is relying on this traditional pairing? And I think the answer is like, both things are happening at once, but. Yeah, um, some of each, some of each, you know, we're all drawing on our internal reserves of black butler context and projecting it onto Jack Zimmerman. I think the one thing we really haven't addressed is this fist bump. And definitely when you wrote something about the fist bump, like why does Biddy even want the fist bump on the outline? Truly all I thought about was like, well, it's a metaphor for all the fisting they'll be doing later on. (laughs) Oh yeah, Biddy, Jack, and Michelle Foucault. That's that's, that's where... Yeah, I don't know. Why does Vinny want to earn this fist bump? Like, what is it to him? Is it the same part of him that wants to play hockey even though he's fucking feigning every practice? Like, what's going on here? Well, one thing that's going on here is that one thing that does bring Biddy and Jack together is that neither of them have ever heard of Michelle Foucault. (laughs) Biddy wants a fist bump because he just wants to fit in. Here he's being presented in hockey with a system of toxic masculinity. I know we've all, or at least I have, learned to say that with like a sarcastic edge in my voice. Hard to tell, right? Because everything I say has a sarcastic edge. The reason why I say it with tildes is because it's a deeply overused phrase in and around Chuck Please fandom. Like a lot of cliches, it was only repeated so often because it's true. Hockey is a hive of toxic masculinity. It's full of young men who are being systemically conditioned to act toxically. The point the comic is making from here to the end is that Biddy and Jack, but let's just go with Biddy for simplicity's sake. Biddy is not interested in there being less toxic masculinity. He wants to figure out how to access the toxic masculinity. The argument the comic is making is that toxic masculinity should expand to encompass pity. And I I know that's not what, like, either the author or a defender of this comic would say, but, like, that's the reading. And Jack's whole fucking point about, like, 
you got to earn a fist bump. It's like, oh, go fuck yourself. This is the most disposable gesture in like jock communication technology. Giving somebody a fucking fist bump. It is ubiquitous to the point where like Ollie and Wiki, the like no name, faceless, can't keep straight which one of them is which hockey bros who populate the backgrounds of about like, mm, let's estimate nine comics. That's the gesture that they're always making. The sort of faceless, interchangeable white bros are always fist bumping each other. It's both something about Jack being closed off and super extra that he makes people earn fist bumps. And also something about Billy wanting so badly to fit into this culture that he is buying into the narrative that the comic is presenting that you need to earn the fist bump. I was like really holding out for some other narrative arc, but spoilers that we've already talked about on, I believe on another uh, episode, Biddy ends the comic by checking somebody and knocking a tooth out. Very hot. I think it's an illegal hit too, right? That's what people have said. However, I can't profess to being that familiar with NCAA checking rules to know what particular thing is and isn't illegal. And I'll also raise the point that people in this fandom, regardless of whether or not they're OMGCP underscore critical, use the hockey play to basically make any kind of point they want. Uh, that's fair. I don't know whether it's illegal or not. I think the, the broader question is like, what does it mean that we're condoning? Even though, again, I talked about how contact sports can be kind of like interesting or cool spaces. There's something troubling to me about the narrative ultimately being this guy fully buys into the values espoused by this violent sport. I am starting to feel... Reading through these early strips, where I would also have presumed that that wasn't going to be the conclusion to the story, that maybe that was always going to be the conclusion to the story. What Biddy is doing here, other than trying to, like, you know, break Jack's walls down and, like, forcibly imposing his, his cult of openness onto Jack Zimmerman, accepting all of the shittiness that Jack has committed up to this point as necessary steps that he needs to take to gain acceptance within this sport and within this culture. Why should Biddy be impressed by Jack's meaningless little gesture that he like reserves for people when they're like getting with his program? I think that's why I have to read it as attached to Biddy's point of view. Because if I, I can read this as this is what this character thinks, and I think that's really interesting. As soon as I read it as this is how it should be in the world, I just find it like extremely depressing. Like the text is allowed to have a point of view that's separate from Biddy's point of view. As a way of preserving my enjoyment of this strip, I, I, can, I can really enjoy it when I think this is what Biddy thinks. It's hard for it's much harder for me to enjoy it when I think this is the world that the Czech please like advocates for philosophically. <laughs> Not to say that that's actually what Ngozi thinks. I have no clue what Ngozi thinks. I can guess based on what I see. I can guess what the point of the strip is supposed to be when I think about it. Like, here's how rom coms work. Here's how like romances work. 
here's how this strip fits into that context. I can see, like, as you said, this is a touching moment. This is a breaking down of walls. This is the first step of what will become a love for the ages. Like, I see how it fits into that. But when I take it out of that context and I just look at what's on this page, it's, it's not particularly romantic. Sometimes people say things to be mean about check please. Like, I can't imagine these two characters having sex or it doesn't seem like they have any sort of like frisson of erotic romance between them. And I don't think that's necessarily true by the time you get to year three, at least not for me. And also textually, it's like, well, something's got to be working for these two fools. But the very last panel in this comic where Jack is opening the door and looking down on Biddy and Biddy is just kind of like, how many julikers carrying shock straps up the stairs, babbling like a moron. That is a panel where I look at them and both because of how they're drawn in relation to each other in terms of size and just because of like their body language. Hard to imagine these people ever relating to each other in a way that approaches horniness. For me, there's like a bell curve where there's no horniness at the beginning. And then like in the middle, I'm like, oh yeah, these guys, they're having sex and they're having a fair amount of it. And then towards the end, when they're going to get married, I'm like, they've experienced lesbian bed death. (laughs) They They are no longer making love on the regular. And that's great for them. I hope they have a great long life. And that's entirely because of how it's drawn. I think that the world of the comics suggests that, yes, they're having, just like everything else in their life is perfect and exactly what they want. I'm sure their sex life is also wonderful. But there's a kind of like curious lack of intimacy here at the beginning. It's not curious here at the beginning. Biddy just emotionally intruded on Jack's painful past. So it makes sense. There would not be so much intimacy. And then I see sort of like a mirroring of that at the end. But that's me. Not everyone has to agree. It's just in that one panel where because you can't see Jack's face and because he's standing like three steps up and because he's like opening the door and gesturing in a way where he's taking up a lot of space... And Biddy is wearing oversized athletic gear, and he looks like he's on AYSO. It's very hard to envision these two people ever being in a space together where they are, like, embodying mutual desire. That's all. That's all I'm saying. It's only this one panel. I don't think it's only this one panel. I just went to go back and look at the fist bump panel and I was like, that man is 40 and that other man is 12. And I just also have a hard time seeing chemistry between them. I do think that chemistry comes later, but I don't think it's here. All right, so next time we're not going very far. We're staying in the building and going to 1.11 Samwell versus Yale 2. We're going to see the game of hockey. Pretty exciting. Eh. I think the only thing I wanted to say also was that uh, in the blog post, um, there are now 500 followers. The comic's starting to blow up. Yeah, so she starts the Tumblr in early August, and at that time she says she's got 250 followers. This is posted in late November, and she's got 500 followers. So she's doubled within a couple months. She's also starting to take, like longer gaps between the strips. Understandable, of course. It's hard to start an MFA program and also do your on-the-side fisting comic. 
That said, the lag between updates will become a real issue in the life of this comic. So it's interesting, at least to me, that that's a thing that's like consistent from pretty early on. But we'll talk more about that in future episodes. Um, Yeah, yeah, especially fisting. Where do people find you if they want to know more about your weird opinions? Oh, God. Well, come find me at tomatorights.tumblr.com, where I'm probably talking about Michelle Foucault in regrettable ways. I am on Camillier, C-A-M-I-L-L-I-A-R, also on Tumblr, or I'm familiar on AO3. You can find this show at checkdispleased.tumblr.com on Podbean and on Spotify. Man, I can't wait until there's just like a trend of bottom separatist AUs. Bye. Bye. Yeah, so the place I became, I know you want to know the place where I became exposed to this. It was when I went on vacation to Disney World in 2013, and I went to the Japan Pavilion in Epcot, and they were selling merch for it in the store there. And I took a picture of it, and I sent it to my friend Nahangan, and I was like, what is this? And she was like, oh my god, you don't know about Black Butler? And I was just like, excuse me? And then I learned. And yeah, it's basically this paradigm of like kind of assholish, dark haired dude with like smaller little baby boy type. Great. Jack and Biddy, everybody. Congratulations. Gay rights.